Welcome to the Medici Podcast, Episode 27, The Decline and Fall of the Medici Bank. to our new patron, Cousin Dick. That's just the name he goes by. We're not relatives. I promise no one in my family is funding me through Patreon, which is all the more reason I need your help. Also, be sure to check out MediciPodcast.com for some tweaking of the Florentine Constitution and the creation of a new government body, the Council of Seventy, the Medici's hold on power was secure. Well, at least as secure as it could ever be. Good news continued to trickle in, not just for Lorenzo, but for all of Italy. The siege of Ontanto struck the Pope and no doubt many Italians with existential terror. But much like how the sudden death of Genghis Khan might have spared Western Europe from the Mongolian centuries ago, Italy caught a break thanks to a powerful man's sudden death. Sultan Mehmed II, the conqueror of Constantinople who saw himself as the true heir of the Roman emperors of old, which may have been why he genuinely wanted to conquer at least part of Italy, died from gout in May of 1481. There was the usual bloody bickering over the succession that happened in Ottoman history in the man who managed to grab the prize this time and become the new sultan, Bayezid II, was more interested in driving the Venetians out of Greece than in new conquests. This factor likely saved Italy from at least further Ottoman campaigns. Instead, the Ottomans practically abandoned their Italian foothold, allowing Neapolitan forces to recapture Otranto in September 1481, just a year after the Ottomans first seized it. Still hoping to set up a kingdom for himself in the Romagna, Girolamo Riario, on his own, had tried to get Venice to abandon Florence and back his aggressive moves to expand his personal fiefdom. The Doge of Venice actually agreed to recognize Riario as the lord of the strategically valuable Romagna town of Faenza, if the Pope would give his approval to their own claims on the Duchy of Ferrara. As a result, another war had broken out, but this time Girolamo had gone too far for the Pope's lacking. People were sick of having the delicate balance of Italian politics thrown into chaos for the sake of the upstart ambitions of some parvenu, and even Girolamo's indulgent uncle was enraged that he had started a war so soon after the last one ended in defeat. Pope Sixtus publicly railed against his nephew's greed and incompetence, while Rome threatened to boil over. One witness in Rome wrote, In the Pope's antechambers, instead of cassocked priests, armed guards keep watch. Soldiers equipped for battle 
were drawn up before the gates of the palace. All the court officials were filled with terror and anguish. The fury of the populace was only restrained by the fear of the soldiers. At the historic town of Cremona, where peace talks were eventually held, Lorenzo was the star negotiator, and no doubt Lorenzo felt no small jolt of schadenfreude when the Pope declared he would excommunicate the Venetians for trying to annex Ferrara and join Florence, Naples, and Milan against Venice and his own nephew. An exhausted and broken-down man by this point, Pope Sixtus died on August 13, 1484, just as peace talks were again about to conclude. To give an idea of how unpopular the Pope had become, here's an epitaph from an anonymous poet. Sixtus, at last you're dead, unjust, untrue, you rest now. You who hated peace so much, in eternal peace. Sixtus, at least you're dead, and Rome is happy. For, when you reigned, so did famine, slaughter, and sin. Sixtus, at least you're dead, eternal engine of discord, even against God himself, now go to dark hell. Ironically, Pope Sixtus's most important contribution to the history of Italy and the Catholic Church wasn't in anything he actually did as Pope, or with the family he worked so hard and sacrificed so many lives to prop up. Instead, his legacy was in a chapel he had built the Sistine Chapel, which was decorated mainly by artists provided by his own loathed nemesis, Lorenzo de' Medici. His greatest rival had exited the stage, but Lorenzo clearly never felt secure. How could he, having seen firsthand a conspiracy against his father, and then the murder of his brother in an attempt to assassinate himself? Although Lorenzo liked to cultivate an atmosphere of scholarship and inquiry, criticizing his regime became increasingly risky over the course of his lifetime. His own mother's cousin, Alessandro Tornabuoni, was tortured and exiled for writing works attacking the regime. In 1481, three men accused of planning to assassinate Lorenzo were hung at the command of the Signora and the Council of Seventy, without the customary due process. Now, like his grandfather, Lorenzo still played the role of just the first among equals in a free republic. While he might occasionally appear in public on a horse and wearing knightly armor like a feudal noble, he still usually dressed in the clothes of a city patrician, greeted his clients in public, accepted petitions from members of the public, and even held daily audiences in a city square that anyone could attend. However, as often happens with momentous historical change, the ground was shifting under everybody's feet, even if not everyone noticed at the time. As Alison Brown has argued, the definition of libertas, liberty, originally referred to the right of people, well, okay, men of certain rank and economic station, to participate in the government through political offices. By at least Lorenzo's time, however, the meaning had, consciously or not, been changed to instead mean a city-state's independence from foreign influence. More blunt was the increasing use of inscriptions around the city's 
government buildings that emphasize patriotism rather than freedom and liberty. Also, the busts in the Palace of the Senora, which were once exclusively the champions of the Republican cause in ancient Rome, now by Lorenzo in his father's time, included Roman emperors. Just to refer back to our tangent episode on republicanism, we have to remember our modern standards of democracy would have been unthinkably extreme to even the republics of medieval and renaissance Italy. There is no such thing as freedom of speech, at least not the way we think of it today. Even before the Medici came along, offending the dominant political faction of a city-state could get you exiled, even for life. Valenzo had a network of informants and a government stacked with loyalists who proved they would stretch, if not outright break, the rule of law in order to defend Lorenzo. But Lorenzo still had the power of public opinion at his side. He was popular enough that even in his own time he was referred to as Magnifico, an honorific that was often given to beloved leading citizens in the city, but which eventually became strongly connected to Lorenzo alone. The historian Guicciardini was probably summarizing the views of a lot of Florentines when he deemed Lorenzo de' Medici as a, quote, benevolent tyrant. Behind the scenes, however, one of the Medici's main vehicles for achieving and maintaining power was falling apart, namely the Medici Bank. Now, the story usually goes that Lorenzo was too busy with political affairs and patronage, or was too inept with fiscal matters, or both, to properly manage the bank. And it is true that during his lifetime it went into a stark decline. Lorenzo's biographer, Judith Hook, puts it this way, Lorenzo had neither the experience, nor the inclination, nor indeed the time. That's not wrong, but it's not entirely true either. Raymond D. Ruver, in his book Rise and Fall of the Medici Bank, instead suggested that the Medici Bank was sinking near the end, Cosimo de Medici's life. Part of the problem was circumstances even the best bankers would not have been able to navigate. But also the Medici were caught in an ironic trap. The bank had made them the unofficial leaders of Florence. But being the unofficial leaders of Florence was also slowly killing the bank. For example, when the Portinari brothers, the managers of the bank branch in Milan, were reproached for being too generous with loans, one of the brothers, Pigello, pointed out that it was practically impossible to turn away powerful courtiers at the Duke of Milan's court without jeopardizing Florence's precious alliance with Milan. This was certainly why the Duke of Milan himself felt he was under no obligation to pay off his debts to the Medici. Then there was the problem with the monarchs of England. England's wool trade was essential for Florence's number one industry, cloth production. English kings also had the right to issue export licenses to merchants, so they could, if they so wished, cut Florentine businesses out of their wool trade altogether. This meant that as bankers, the Medici might have to pressure the King of England to pay his debts to them. But as the leaders of Florence, 
They also had to keep the English wool coming so their most prosperous businesses wouldn't go bankrupt and thousands of workers wouldn't lose their jobs. But while it is true the bank had some serious and potentially fatal problems, it was when Lorenzo was at the helm that it truly began to implode. And indeed, the problem was that the need to focus on political affairs and patronage and the lack of other adult men in the family who could shoulder the burden caused Lorenzo to entrust the bank to a series of general managers outside the family and to give a great deal of independence to the individual bank managers who had their own agendas. For example, Tommaso Portinotti, manager of the bank branch in Bruges, authorized massive loans to the Duke of Burgundy. In the latter, Lorenzo complained. So, in order to court the Duke's favor and make himself important, he did not care that it was at our expense. Lorenzo also accused Pigello Portinotti of fudging the numbers on how well his branch of the bank in Milan was doing. One general manager Lorenzo trusted, Francesco Sassetti, took on the bizarre but very pro-capitalist policy of actually encouraging branch managers and individual workers within the bank's branches to compete with each other rather than working together. Lorenzo also gave a free hand to his mother's uncle Giovanni Tornabuoni, who didn't serve as a general manager, but did not hesitate to interfere with bank procedures and countermand the branch manager's orders whenever he felt like he needed to. At the same time as the bank was being torn apart from the inside and making bad loans for political reasons, it was also experiencing pressures from the outside. One of the bank's big celebrity clients had been King Edward IV of England. Edward IV had the misfortune of being involved in a generations-long civil war between two branches of the English royal dynasty. This war was called the War of the Roses, which, by the way, is also the title of a fantastic Danny DeVito movie. Edward IV was eventually overthrown in 1470 in favor of his main rival claimant, Henry VI, which left the Medici Bank holding the bag. Edward did return to power just a year later, but having to pay through the nose to get his throne back, along with two ill-advised and expensive wars in France and Scotland, made Edward unable to pay off his debts to the Medici. The most he would do is lift all tariffs for Florentine merchants on the wool trade. This was far from enough, and by 1478 the Medici Bank branch in London was shut down. The same year, the branch in Bruges was also dissolved. There was a deep economic depression in the 80s and 1490s. Exactly what caused this depression is a matter of debate and speculation. But Ruver does suggest that the Florentine economy was hit hard when Venice was drawn into a long and destructive war with the Ottoman Empire over Venice's colonies in Greece. This war marked Venice's own long and slow decline from the great economic powerhouse of Italy, to become, by the 18th century, like Monaco today, little more than a tourist destination for the rich. While the Medici did have various business investments and land holdings, 
Even in this painful period, the bank was still their main source of revenue. So, unfortunately, at the same time the bank was floundering, Lorenzo had to spend and spend and spend to maintain his growing patronage network and to get out of the crisis following the Pazzi conspiracy. We already mentioned how he exploited his position as the legal guardian of his young cousins, the sons of Pier Francesco de' Medici. When they reached adulthood, they demanded their money back and actually sued Lorenzo. Proving Lorenzo still wasn't the absolute ruler of Florence, the courts decided in favor of Pier Francesco's heirs. In the end, Lorenzo had to hand over Cafagiolo and other ancestral estates in the Mugello Valley to his cousins in order to pay them off. But one thing Lorenzo did get away with was embezzlement. Through cooking the books and other tricks, Lorenzo took money from the Florentine government itself. He especially took liberally from the Monte di Pieta, the public fund meant to help pay for marriage dowries for poor Florentine women. As Lorenzo's other biographer, Malzunger, points out, this may very well have been the source of the money Lorenzo showered on Naples' unmarried girls for their diaries in order to win over the Neapolitans. Now, I believe it should be clear that Lorenzo resorted to embezzlement and fraud because he genuinely felt he had to. And, frankly, he did have some really good reasons. That said, it was still a bad look by not only modern standards, but the standards of the time. And we can debate endlessly over whether or not Lorenzo put himself into the situation, at least partially, through his own poor decisions. Now, I know we've spent a long time with Lorenzo the Magnificent, but it's almost time to say goodbye. As we do so, though, we're going to revisit Italy as a whole and take a look at the overall political situation on the peninsula and see why the real test of the Medici regime was actually yet to come. Thank you for listening, and buona notte.